Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airport. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Strike up the band. I said to him, I don't want to win a prize for an advert and lose in a landslide, and both of those things happened. I did have Nick Clegg at my wedding. I think it was the vicar's happiest moment. I mean, isn't it absolutely wonderful? You can't remember the words, Peter. Ah, here we are again then. I'm Matt Chorley and this is How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the big political year ahead. Uh, joined in the studio this week by new Labour mastermind Peter Manners. Peter, how are you? I'm very well, Matt. It's nice to be back. If you, uh, well, we'll come to your, your singing or otherwise in a moment. Uh, Polly McKenzie's here, former director of policy for Nick Clegg and the Coalition. How are you, Polly? It's my son's 10th birthday today. I've already Happy baked birthday. a cake and built a trampoline. Wow. Yeah. A full-size one. Uh, where, I mean, what is a full-size trampoline? I mean, it's not like Olympic size or anything. No, OK. Six by four. Right, OK, very good. We're, we're, we're now at the stage of almost thinking we can get rid of the trampoline and reclaim a massive part of our garden. Lucky so, you. Yeah, best of luck with that. And joining us live from New York, New York, uh, Tory Box, Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. Yes, we're hoping to do that as well. Um, I, I suppose you're having a polling bounce. Is that right, Polly? Ah, oh, very good. Danny's in New York because he was on the uh, the cruise uh, from Southampton to uh, to New York that I was also on. But I came home to make sure we were here to do this. Now, uh, if you want to get in touch with us at any point about the podcast, you can email us at howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, and last week on the podcast, we brought you this memorable moment of our very own Peter Manson singing... Meet the challenge, make the change. Challenge, make the change. Beautiful. I love that. Yes, and Peter wanted us to try and find the singer. So Sean got in touch and said uh, it was very apt that Matt Jolly is on a cruise as Philip Brown has been a cruise singer as well. So it turns out Philip Brown sang yes. Meet me, me the Challenge, Make the Change. That's right. Uh, at uh, a Labour event in 1986. So we managed to track him down. I contacted Philip's agent, Wendy Scozaro, uh, from Felix de Wolf Limited, and asked if he wanted to come on and relive his time. <laughs> Dear Matt, thank you for contacting my client about Meet the Challenge. I'm sorry to disappoint, but it is not the right project for Philip at this juncture. <laughs> 
We appreciate your interest. Regards, Wendy. So I had another go at Persuader. It's just to come and have a trip down memory lane. You've become Frank Sinatra now. With Peter Bannister. So I had another go at Persuader. Hi, Matt. Thanks for the additional information. (laughs) My answer remains the same. (laughs) Regards, Wendy. So I'm sorry to say, we we know who he is, but he doesn't want to come on. Philip's become very grand, hasn't he? I mean, it was a big launch. Yeah. Yeah, He's made a great thing of that break we gave him in 1989, by the way, in Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's obviously sort of reached great heights and doesn't want to look back. Thank you very much, Philip. He's got post-politics stress disorder, (laughs) like most of us. (laughs) So uh, we have got, in in Danny, we have got one cruise liner entertainer uh, to make do with. Um, uh, Do you sing, Danny? No, I'm glad to say that I don't. Good. Uh, We've also (laughs) had this uh, from Paul Decker of Pinner. Do you know Paul Decker, Danny? No, I don't. I don't know. Paul Decker very right. close knit community. Well, I thought you knew everyone in Pinner. <laughs> uh, I do think Peter, who has a mellifluous, mellifluous speaking voice, mm-hmm. which complements very well Polly's dulcet tones and Danny's baritone sound, needs singing lessons, lessons pronto after the closing offensive noise at the end of the recent <laughs> podcast. Can, can I just point out that yeah. when I was in primary school, I sang the solo of In the Bleak Midwinter on a Decca recording of Christmas carols by the Hampstead Garden Suburb Primary School Choir. So, thank well, you, well, mate. That, that, that's, 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 the next, that's my next week uh, <laughs> on eBay sorted. Is that true? It is true. There we are. Whereas you, famously, Polly, were kicked out of two school choirs? Two different schools, two different yeah. school choirs. I, I was kept in one uh, where we sang at Gloucester Cathedral, a production of Simpkin and the Tailor of Gloucester, but I was in the choir, but I was told to mouth... <laughs> not, not, not sing. Good. Well, that's um, that's sort of the, the, the sort of last week's business uh, revisited. Let's take a look then at what we're going to focus on uh, this week: um, dissent and how you deal with troublemakers and plotters, and do how you deal with them. Particularly, you know, the closer you get to an election, everyone says divided parties don't win elections. Uh, first of all, then Rishi Sunak under a lot of pressure from within his, within his party. Net migration at a record high. His new Home Secretary, James Cleverly, not talking as tough as his predecessor. Uh, there's, there's talk of, of rebels backing amendments, uh, over leaving the ECHR. Um, Danny, does he need to accommodate his angry MPs or can he ride it out? And actually, is there an advantage into sort of being seen to stand up to, to troublemakers? I don't think it helps to have just a, a division in a political party. So there's nothing you can really do about that that makes it better. But the reason that people have a division in a party is not just because of the issues. It's because they're trying to position themselves for when the party wins or loses an election. Uh, not just in the explicit way that uh, you have running for leadership elections, although that's certainly one of the forms of it. But in a general way, uh, they don't want themselves to feel they're responsible for the decisions the parties are making. So if the party isn't doing well, they can say to their friends, well, I did advise them to do something different. So oddly, the most important thing that you can do as a leader uh, when you get a division is to tack towards what you think will help you win an election, because that will reduce the incentive to individuals to divide themselves from you. So often when you're being advised, for example, by someone on, say, the left of the Labour Party to move towards the left, the best thing that you can do is whatever you think will help you win. You can watch that with Keir Starmer. The party is pulled towards him partly by his... Uh, election victory. And I always felt with with Peter that that one of the big things that he did for the right of the Labour Party was 
basically provide them with victory and therefore make people like Robin Cook move towards Tony Blair just because uh, the incentive was to be in government to support the leadership. So it's it's contradictory. You're, you're pulled by somebody advising you to move towards a particular position on ideological grounds, but actually the right thing to do is to move in the direction you think will win an election, which may be the opposite direction to the, to the piece of advice you're getting. So you can reduce yeah. dissent, weirdly, by moving in the opposite direction to the dissenters. And then, um, Peter, Danny mentions uh, Keir Starmer, because he obviously had his own troubles a couple of weeks ago with uh, rebels backing the amendment calling for a ceasefire in the in the Middle East. Actually, he saw there was a position of strength to be made from, from sacking lots of front benches. I mean, it's, he's only just got round to replacing them all, uh, but he has now done that. Um, but do you think he's now emerged from that, that process stronger, despite actually, two weeks ago, not persuading dozens of his own MPs to do what he wanted? Yes, he's operating the uh, the, the Peter principle of uh, <laughs> politics, which is, uh, if in doubt, uh, do what's right rather than what's popular uh, in your uh, party because that's where the public are going to end up. And I think the public see that, you know, negotiating, trying to negotiate a ceasefire uh, with a prescribed terror organisation that have absolutely no interest in uh, laying down their rockets and their bombings and their terror activities, um, and then turning round to the Israelis when Hamas refused to do that and saying, well, you've got to have a unilateral ceasefire anyway and just let Hamas get away, you know, celebrating their victory is not the right thing to do, I'm afraid. I mean, it's horrible, it's ghastly, it's a just a tragic, tragic situation. But I think most people in the country would, would see that you've got to uh, realise you've got to see this through. Now, that doesn't give carte blanche to uh, the Israelis, obviously, but I think that what Starmer did uh, was really, really important. And I think it marked, if I may say so, uh, a departure from what characterised his first year office when he was trying to reunify the party after the Corbyn era, when he was trying to bring everyone together, when he thought that, you know, perhaps the Corbynistas, the hard left could be reconciled to his leadership and we should all sort of, you know, form a ring, hold hands and sing Kumbaya uh, and be happy ever after. Well, what saw that off was a calamitous defeat for the Labour Party in his leadership in the Hartlepool by-election, mm. obviously very close to my heart. And what he decided to do after was not make, you know, unity the central objective of his leadership, but doing what was right, getting the right policies in place and facing down those who were opposing him uh, uh, from the left and from the Corbynista, the remnants of mm. the Corbynista wing. And I think he's built strength, electoral strength, uh, on that ever since. Well, there's a chicken and egg thing, though, isn't there, Polly? Does, you, does your strength come from... Uh, being in the, being ahead in the polls, or does being ahead in the polls give you that that strength? The the, the, the Keir Starmer is in a position when you are twenty points ahead of the polls, you can take these tough decisions and face down your rebels in a way that Rishi Sunak can't because he's got a load of people who are worried about losing their seats. He doesn't have the same sort of authority to say, "Well, my plan is clearly working." So actually, the calculation about do you you know do whack a mole with your rebels or do you try to accommodate them slightly comes from how you're doing in the polls. That's the thing with politics, isn't it? Is that power accumulates. It has a sort of gravitational pull. If you're strong enough to suppress dissent, that can help you to... Uh 
to do as I think Peter and Danny are sort of saying the same thing, actually, which is moving towards what's right, as Peter's words, or what's going to win you an election, in Danny's words, is the same thing. It's can you appeal to the centre ground, uh, the kind of the moderate uh, public opinion, which are the people that you need to actually win an election? Um, and and the challenge is you have to have enough strength to be able to do that. And I guess a leader over time starts to accumulate that strength. Um, and, and they can then use the suppression of dissent to appeal to the voters, right? Like, it, like David Cameron saying to his party, we need to stop banging on about Europe, helps to, yes suppress some dissent, but also look strong, tell his centre ground voters that actually I'm going to be a different kind of conservative. We know that, you know, new Labour was constructed around the word new, around the idea that we are going to change clause four, we are going to change what the party is. And so you need some conflict with your party in order to be able to tell mm. the story you, that's going to win you the election. New yeah. Labour was built around a, a, a bit of a philosophy, which is that clarity of strategy and clarity of purpose and direction is more important yeah. than party unity. And that was very central to New Labour. We can come back to that and discuss it because it, that is the fault line, actually, that divided Blair and Brown during the New Labour years, I can, I can explain. But I, I think that what Polly says is important, you know, occupying a centrist position and fighting an election from that, either leading to the left or the right, uh, is the best electoral uh, strategy. But what's even more fundamental than that in winning an election is strength versus weakness. And yeah. that's about leadership. I mean, I think famously both Thatcher and Blair basically were lead and decide prime ministers. And I remember Blair on occasion saying to me, you know, when you decide, you also divide. Yeah. Uh, and when you divide a party, uh, you've got to make sure that you prevail, that you that you win, that you persuade and you take people with you. Uh, and the minority who, who dissent are prepared to accept that uh, and let the majority and the leader lead. And the reason why this is very important is because I think the moment a leader of a political party starts showing fear, uh, towards dissent and those who are rebelling in the ranks, then the public get a clear whiff of that fear. They see that leader weak rather than strong, and at which point he or she is dead in the water. And that's the, that's the well, thing, isn't it, um, Danny? Is it, it depends whether you are coming from a, a position of strength or weakness as to whether or not you emerge from a, a yes. standoff with your rebels in hearts or otherwise. <laughs> Exactly. That you have to win these battles if you pitch them. That's that's uh, critical. So uh, obviously, what mattered about clause four, uh, the clause four thing that Tony Blair did, was that ultimately he won. Polly made a very good point in distinguishing between what Peter and I had said, where I said uh, you move towards what wins you the election. Peter said you move towards what's right. Uh, and there, there is obviously a gap between those two things. Um, sometimes you, what you believe to be right, uh, isn't actually what the public think. Uh, and one of the issues that I think Labour will find that to be true of is on immigration, actually, where the, the public will be to the right of where the party is. Now, part of that gap is filled, as Peter suggested, by 
just showing strength. In other words, you show resolve, you show clarity, uh, you you do what you think to the, the public can see that you're sincere and that you're firm. That does help a lot, but it doesn't fill the whole gap. There sometimes is a real dilemma when you have a position and the public doesn't share it. Possibly uh, at, at later stages in the Iraq war, Tony Blair had that, uh, that, that problem. And they're, I think, the most yeah. tricky yeah. issues for you to solve. Well, we'll come on to some of the historical examples of because you've all been involved in various tussles with uh, with rebels and, um, and, uh, and plotters uh, over the years. So we'll look at some of the big showdowns between the leaders and their parties that you've been involved in uh, in just a moment, right here on how to win an election. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We're talking about plots and dissent and rebels and whether you should placate them or not. And I just wanted to touch a bit on the the trap that, that, that some think the, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has made uh, for the Labour Party, were they, as the polls suggest, to get into uh, power after the next election. Pensioning in big cuts to departmental spending after the next election. And if Labour wins the election... Keir Starmer and uh, Rachel Weisz are going to have to decide whether or not to stick with them. And obviously, then it means, uh, um, you know, big cuts and possibly rounds with the left. And it's what the Tory party managed to, to create a massive headache for the Labour uh, after, was it after 2015 election under Harriet Harman and that sort of early early Labour leadership contest. She, Harriet Harman was acting leader. There was a big vote welfare. on welfare. And actually, that sort of opened up the Labour Party to Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader. So, so it's sort of, is it is that smart politics, do you think, um, Peter? I don't think that in Jeremy itself Hunt? opened up the way to Jeremy Corbyn. I think Jeremy Corbyn cre- filled a void that had been created mm. during the five years previously under uh, Ed Miliband and Harriet Harman. But yes, these are difficult issues. Yeah. And what you'll find is the hard left in the party always trying to find issues 
uh, on which they can sort of organize and mobilize, a stick to a rod to beat the leadership with, uh, and recruit support to their side of the party, not simply on that issue, but more widely. I mean, that frankly is what they're doing over, over Gaza mm-hmm. and the ceasefire. It's become almost emblematic uh, of something rather than something which is sort of, you know, an innate issue in it, just in itself. And what they're trying to do all the time, and no doubt, you know, they will rise again when they see an issue coming along, uh, is try to sort of divide the party, polarise it, get people onto their side. But the truth is that since the Cor- Corbyn days uh, were numbered, um, he, his supporters, his whole momentum organization, they've completely receded in organization. They have no battalions. They have very little support across the party in the constituencies. And, you know, their time has come and gone. And that is the small yeah. miracle, if you like, that Starmer has achieved since he became leader. Just on um, Jeremy Hunt, Danny, I don't know if you saw this in the Sunday Times at the weekend. Um, Tim Shipman wrote that Jeremy Hunt had been speaking to Spad's school and meeting of Conservative Special Advisors in Downing Street, and he quoted another one of your theories, which I think is one that you've shared on the podcast, maybe the Chancellor's listening, uh, where you said if real take-home pay is going up in the six months before polling day, then governments normally win elections. Were you aware that you're now now on the syllabus <laughs> for Spad's school? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously that's not my theory, it's just... Uh, a lot of work that's been done by political scientists predominantly in the United States, and it's about timing of the economy. So it's not just how well off you are over the whole period of a government, but how well off you are in the six months before an election and after. Actually, I have to sort of uh, add to that, that in addition to how the economy appears to people at the end, they also remember the peak. So this is the reason why that theory didn't, for example, see John Major home in 1997. And I rather suspect yeah. that, uh, that, that Liz Truss's <laughs> period as, as, um, as prime minister will be seen as uh, the peak, however the economy goes at the end. And I'm afraid that I also, from Jeremy Hunt's point of view, would be surprised if the economy gave him a soft landing at the right point as well. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, but, but just, just the, the discussion we've just had about, uh, the economy. Obviously, Jeremy Hunt isn't trying to put Labour in a difficult position because he doesn't want Labour to win the next general election. What puts Labour in a difficult position, a bit like some of the issues that put the Tories in a political position, is just exactly the thing that I talked about earlier, where there is a strong uh, political position that doesn't accord with what the leadership of the party think is right, um, where where the politics and the leadership's instincts go in different directions. Those are the hardest issues. So what's going to put Labour in a difficult position on spending is that, that spending just is a tricky issue for a political party that wants to keep taxes down in order to win elections, but at the same time has a sort of strong impulse that we ought to be spending more money, more money yeah, on yeah. the um, well, we'll see if the, the, the let's, let's 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 park future possible rebellions and talk about some historical ones you've all been involved in. Polly, is that part of the week when I say tuition fees? Uh, so before, and you you sort of blink uh, um, uh, involuntarily. Uh, obviously, in twenty ten, Nick Clegg goes into twenty ten election promising to uh, abolish tuition fees, uh, and then having got into power, accidentally trebled them. Well, Matt, like, let's get the historical <laughs> record accurate here. So actually, the, the promise in the 2010 manifesto was to uh, vote against any increase to tuition fees and introduce a fairer alternative. Now, uh, what is a fairer alternative? Who knows? But, you know, the, the dissent that 
Nick uh, and uh, the team around him weren't kind of willing to deal with was actually sort of two years back when a policy paper had been commissioned by uh, a sort of the working groups that the Lib Dems use that came forward with uh, some recommendations basically for us to move away from that policy pledge around abolishing tuition fees. And uh, I think primarily just because of the sort of the naivety of opposition, not expecting to be in government, obviously, any time, it didn't feel like it was worth the political capital for Nick to back that policy paper, take it to a big conflict at a party conference, because the Lib Dems are very, very obsessive about having, you know, democratically decided policy. He wasn't sure he would win. uh, And so he just thought, well, it's fine, I'll just sort of fudge it. And and that fudge, which then got put into the manifesto as this sort of vague thing about, about doing something fairer, was unfortunately left this gap for lots and lots of campaigners to get their candidates to stand up with a pledge saying that they would vote against any increased tuition fees. And that, that's where you end up with hypocrisy. And for me, you know, part of this challenge is very easy to think about sort of the policy game, the political game, sorry, of, of who's up and who's down and who wants this and who wants that. But actually, in the end, the policy and the reality will come, they will come and they will bite you. And it is so often the case with things like immigration or human rights, where the Conservatives box themselves into impossible promises to appease dissenters and then end up looking stupid to the voters because reality it doesn't negotiate in the same way that home secretaries I, do but then what about on the on once then in government to what extent do you think the tuition fees issue became the sort of thing that peter was just talking about which is it, it, it's partly about how much you have to pay to go to university, but it's also just a sort of a way of being cross about everything that the Lib Dems in government are are doing. And that, that instead of sort of grumbling about being in coalition with the Tories or not being a minister, there was actually it, it becomes a what appears to be a very principled position for a load of Lib Dem MPs and, and members to be very cross, whereas actually they're just sort of sounding off about the direction of everything. It's certainly true. It, it's a lightning rod. It's yeah, much that's, easier that's for people for. to... long-winded way of getting there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's easier to people to kind of focus their attention around that. But, you know, to be honest, there was dissent about being in government at all. You know, there was dissent about tuition fees. There was dissent about the AV referendum. Each of those things probably took five percentage points off our polling. Uh, and then once you've lost 15 points, you're not down to much the if truth you start is, at 23. The truth is, Matt, that in 2009, uh, Nick Clegg saw a wonderful piece of political opportunism. I rang Nick. Uh, I was responsible for universities and funding as part of my huge... Huge brief. Huge brief and department. And I said, look, Nick, we've had these tuition fees. We brought them in. It was incredibly painful. They're here to stay. But the truth is that our universities are facing another funding gap and these fees are going to have to go up. Let's not fight over it now. Let's not have a brawl over this and try to score points over each other at the coming election when we all know that we've got to find some solution to this. Let me set up a commission, an inquiry, which I did under uh, John Brown, and uh, he will look at it, make some recommendations, and then whoever wins on the other side of the election can pick up the bat and decide how to implement it. And that's what I offered the Conservatives, uh, they accepted it, warmly sort of embraced this sort of fudge and way of postponing the issue and taking it out of the electoral battleground. But, oh, no, not Nick. He had to take it on because he saw an opportunity. He thought he could score points over both the Conservatives and Labour in taking this very painful 
uh, decision and he refused to have anything to do with it. And then he made his commitments, which were then saddled round his neck like an albatross, if you saddle an albatross <laughs> on your neck. Um, and, and the rest is history. And he made a complete idiot of himself. And that was a good example uh, of not doing what was right for the country uh, because you were afraid of it being unpopular. But uh, another example of where the public in the end gets it realizes that you've got to do something which is difficult, leaving you, Nick Clegg, you know, uh, high and dry, uh, marooned on an island because you've just sort of saddled yourself with this albatross and that's exactly what happened I've and just he got such and a picture he and he an deserved, with a saddle he, Nick, Nick, <laughs> Peter riding Nick, an albatross I'm afraid deserved all he got on this Polly do you uh, want this? I have a, a slight no, different view of this <laughs> no. I've, got a slight, I've got a slightly different view um, which is that the Liberal Democrats were very reliant upon people in the education system to provide them university uh, towns. with with yeah. votes. You, that that meant university students, yeah. and also I think another core group for them was high paid, uh, relatively highly paid um, public servants. In other words, the public servants at the top of the public servant scale, uh, which was obviously you know. Uh, a, a group of people concentrated in some of the same places. Those are the two groups of people whose interests they simply couldn't cut against. Uh, so I understood politically why Nick Clegg made the decision that he was going to fight on this issue. What was perplexing was that he then felt he had enough room to move from that position. And George Osborne uh, told him in one of the uh, quartet meetings, the meetings of, of the four people at the top of the government, that he didn't expect... Uh, that, that, that Nick Clegg would go along with the, the government's policy on tuition fees because he understood the pledge that they'd made. I, what I couldn't understand was that having made this decision, having made this pledge, which I understood the reason for, he then couldn't see that he was bound to it. But that's because, in fact, the, I mean, it's sort of as Peter says, the policy in broad terms, was necessary. It was the way that universities were protected from the impact of austerity with all the benefits for education and for research and development. That, of course, has been massively eroded over the decades since with uh, huge implications for both universities and, and for the economy. And, and he genuinely believed he was doing the right thing mm. in supporting a policy that did at the time, it was only once maintenance grants okay. got abolished. Let, let's that let's, let's all be generous and give Nick Clegg the benefit of I'm sure he's listening. I'm sure he's listening. If Jeremy Hunt's listening, Nick Clegg's definitely listening. Um, Danny, you've got another theory, um, as well as the, the theory quoted by Jeremy Hunt, different to the Peter Principle. What's your theory about party dissent? Well, it's just, it's just as I said earlier, that, that, it, that people, you have to look at people uh, as making decisions that individually make sense for them. So the dissenters are, uh, they have an incentive to... Uh, rebel against you because they don't want to take responsibility for your position insofar as you're not winning. So that was that was the theory that I, yeah, yeah. I advanced earlier. So what do we do about coups and when you know resignations and and because uh, uh, I think you've all you've all had ministerial resignation watches. No, not not we're not bringing up your resignations, Peter. We'll do this. <laughs> we've got a whole. I, I have a PhD on the subject. We've got a week. <laughs> we've got a week of specials uh, just on your resignations. <laughs> um, but when you know I, the one I was uh, immediately thinking of was was Jeff Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt. Oh, their coup against Gordon Brown. The non-coup. The non the non but they're quite often non-coups. Has, has yeah. anyone ever brought down a so, Prime Minister solely by, in recent times? Go on, Danny. There's basically a market failure in coups, okay? So the cost of the coup 
is concentrated upon the person who advances it. If you were the person who advances a coup, as Jeff Hoon, in fact, and Patricia Hewitt discovered, and you can't get other people to go along with it, you put your head above the parapet and your head gets shot off. That's what happens. Uh, and so... Uh, people tend to think, well, I'm not going to do this because while the cost is concentrated upon me, uh, the benefits are spread to everyone. Uh, so I'm only going to get a small part of the benefits. And this means that when an, a coup seems obviously in the interest of the party, so let's take the example of Labour before 2010, it was completely apparent that Gordon Brown was going to not be an electoral asset at the the coming general election there wasn't a vast ideological reason well, despite why bringing preserve. back peter with that yogurt and his banana you <laughs> there, still there wasn't wasn't vast, and the linen there jacket let's not forget <laughs> there, was, there wasn't a vast ideological reason to have him over some of the other contenders so that, that there were good reason for moving against him but no one wanted to do this because they didn't want and david miliband was the was obviously the key person of whom this was true but no one wanted to for example jane join james Pennell when he decided to go first and james Pennell just ended up resigning from the cabinet and being out uh, and so people uh, but now he's got a great job danny because he works with me <laughs> exactly there's an undersubscribe <laughs> but danny on both occasions you had a coup without a candidate I mean, that was the problem with James Purnell. He may have thought that people were going to follow him, but, but they didn't. And uh, Patricia and Jeff, who might have thought in the following January that people were going to follow them, but they didn't. And on neither occasion would David Miliband put himself forward. But uh, by the time we got to that sort of end of the Labour government, I mean, what people were worried about was... And it goes back to this sort of original definition of new labour, this fault line in new labour, where you have to have clarity of strategy and purpose and direction. Um, you had to maintain a modernising uh, project. You had to demonstrate to the public that you were really refreshing the whole time and rethinking and moving forward. And we lost that, quite honestly, uh, under Gordon. And the reason we lost it is because whereas... Blair was very keen on that original, you know, um, you know, clarity, you know, even at the expense of party uh, unity, no matter what the dissenters threw at him, he was going to uh, persuade and prevail. As I said, he, he, he was a great believer in leading and deciding, even if it meant dividing, and then he would, uh, and then he would prevail. Gordon took a very different view. I mean, right from the very beginning, and it actually goes to the heart of why Tony Blair was elected leader rather than Gordon. Gordon, from the beginning, was always somebody who liked to side with the party. Uh, he liked to accommodate the party, manage the party. Uh, and what he said about Blair was that, you know, he criticised Blair for this, for sort of constantly trying to define himself against the party, that Tony had, Tony believed in sort of Blair exceptionalism, that he was always looking for issues on which he could disagree yeah, yeah. over with the party, and confronting the party was what made him such a special leader. That used to drive Gordon Brown absolutely, <laughs> you know, bonkers. And, but to an extent, it is true. Tony did believe in sort of leading and changing from the front, even if it meant being opposed and having dissenters uh, uh, oppose you. Gordon, on the other hand, was more content to compromise, work, to blur uh, and to sort of take the party with you and to go more towards the lowest common denominator. And the truth is that the public sussed that out. Yeah, yeah. They knew that. 
Polly, just very briefly, I need to say the words Vince Cable to you, where almost exactly the same thing was going on most of the time when you were in coalition. Nick Clay was sort of taking these tough decisions, and Vince Cable and, and his friends uh, were out and about sort of tickling the tummy of the party, suggesting he was doing it all very reluctantly and, and just basically causing a headache because he was he was popular amongst the party members. I, I mean, that that's absolutely true. Um, and... Vince, I think, you know, did have uh, an impact on, I guess, party unity. But the reality is that that sort of niggling kind of dissent, it doesn't, it doesn't really shift the dynamics of an election in the way that, you know, big stuff like going into coalition with your enemies <laughs> of 80 years or... But it doesn't help. Do you, you know, no, it doesn't help. And it, it occupies capacity. So that, that's what dissenters need to bear in mind is that they are... The, the main impact they are having is to occupy minutes, hours or days of the leader's time sort of dealing with them and thinking about how to deal with them. And that's probably not very good for the parties uh, standing in the polls. But they're also fundamentally, as, as Peter and Danny have both said, giving their leader an opportunity to tell a story uh, that helps to define them with the voters. Yeah. And, and I think dissenters often are sort of hopelessly naive. Uh, in not recognising that they are sometimes playing into the hands of their leader. Well, we'll uh, we'll have to park that debate. I suspect we'll we'll return to tuition fees in another week and uh, Peter's resignation. We've got them all. Lovely stuff. Uh, Right, we'll do your uh, your questions next that you've sent in on how to win an election. So, uh, enough questions from me. Questions which have been emailed in. Uh, Doug says, what would, could, should leaflets be replaced with? What's the point of leaflets in a in a world where everything's digital? Is there still a value? Danny, is there still a value in leaflets? Um, I'd be very interested to hear what Polly has to say because... Okay, Polly. But my own view is that we're already seeing a shift towards much more direct targeted... Uh, advertising and much more direct targeted emails uh, and electronic uh, provision of information to catered to each person and their individual concerns. And we're going to get more and more of that. So ultimately, I would think that would uh, drive out leaflets. But the reason I'm interested in what Polly has to say is because obviously it's a big part of Liberal Democrat campaigning technique to really flood people with leaflets, particularly in violations, and it does appear to work. So that's why that's why what you know my own instinct would be: well, why would you be sending people a piece of paper when you can be conveying this information electronically and you can cater it to each individual? Uh, Polly may see it differently. I mean, from a sustainability perspective, like the leaflets and the kind of vast quantity of printer ink and uh, <laughs> just horrifies me. Plus, then there's the the fingers affected by the horror of um, letterboxes. I mean, anybody who's delivered a lot of leaflets will have strong opinions on letterbox design in this country. Uh, you don't like the very low ones. 
Low ones are annoying, yeah. but it, it's really about the strength of the spring. Right. What you don't want is to lose a finger um, <laughs> or have a dog tear the thing from you. But And, and Danny's right, though. There's a sort of the personalisation that is possible with digital campaigning is, I mean, slightly terrifying for undermining democracy, frankly, because it does mean that you can really uh, sort of completely ignore the idea that you're trying to make the same promises to a collective group of people, right? Democracy isn't about getting what you want. It's about yeah. getting what we want. So that hyper-personalised campaigning is actually a problem. The Liberal Democrats, especially in by-elections, will continue to flood places with paper. And it's partly because it's the one thing that you cannot avoid because at the very least, you have to pick it up from the doorstep and put it in the recycling bin, and they're aiming for that. You might look that three-second moment. But also, uh, the other thing, maybe Peter, is if you're out, you know, if you're doing it in the street or you're knocking on people's doors and actually opening, to some extent, the, the leaf it just starts a conversation. If you're talking, it to starts someone. a conversation. It's it's like a contract. Yeah. Look. I think uh, the word leaflet rather sort of understates the potential of a piece of really sophisticated printed material. I know that sounds rather grandiose, but when I was sure uh, helping the Labour Party <laughs> in the mid-Bedfordshire, the Nadine Dorries by-election, I saw the most extraordinarily well-designed, conceived, printed, really sort of advanced forms of <laughs> leafleting as you would call them printed yeah. materials mm. that you know the design the coloring i mean everything was really good now look obviously digital is the future we all know that and targeting and tailoring your message but there is something about leaving a leaflet or a piece of good quality printed material in somebody's mm. hand uh, that it remains important in my view in elections and the, the- the letters that David Cameron sent it to uh, Liberal Democrat Conservative marginals in 2015 were incredibly good at uh, pulling people over and saying, we know you like your local MP, but we need this seat. Otherwise, you know, the Tories, no, the Labour Party will govern with the SNP, blah, blah. They yeah, were yeah. hyper-personalised. They, so, they, were, they were great, almost like hand, handwritten letters. There we are. Piece of paper t- still matter. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us a piece of paper if you want to. You could also email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. That was How to Win with Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkstein. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.